0: jazz backstory season two our second set after the break my name is monk Rowe, and i'm the joe williams director of the phileas jazz archive at hamilton college our jazz oral history project initiated in 1995 now consists of 450 video interviews with jazz personalities a diverse collection of performers from multiple generations and jazz eras This podcast offers audio excerpts from these sessions focused on a variety of topics connected to the jazz life. In Season 1, we heard tales of young people inspired by jazz and the learning process that followed, thoughts on the art of improvisation, and poignant and humorous anecdotes about the day-to-day life of working jazz musicians. Our topic for the first two episodes of Season 2 is, Why Jazz?, after the initial attraction and subsequent exploration of the music, what made these musicians stick with it? Before we go, let's hear a lick from our own orchestra in a nutshell. I see from our program notes that's called Two Beat 10 Bars. Hmm. Catchy title. For those of you who have tuned into our first season, you may notice an updated sound to our orchestra. Enthusiastic response to season 1 has enabled an expansion from a duo to a quartet. And after gathering permission from various agents, managers, SKEP, BMI, and the AFM, I am able to announce their names on the air bassist Sean Peters, drummer Tom McGrath, guitarist John Hudson, and yours truly on the alto sax, comprises our new orchestra in a nutshell. We're going to need a bigger nut. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, jazz and vaudeville are alive and well. In season one, a number of successful jazz artists shared childhood stories of musical inspiration. As kids, we all see and hear things that we're attracted to. After all, who doesn't like puppies? But most of us don't become veterinarians. To commit to a life in music, those early experiences had to be followed by subsequent positive stimulation, affecting both heart and soul. Pianist Hal Galper in a recent interview explained it this way, and I quote, I have a belief that you're born with a whole bunch of neutral neurological neurons waiting to be stimulated from the environment. And the environment stimulates the growth of those neurons. When I heard that George Shearing record, that lit up those neurons. Here's vocalist and NEA jazz master Sheila Jordan from our 2002 interview describing how she treasures the moments that light her up. Is music um, at all spiritual to you? Oh God,
1: it's the most spiritual thing in the world. I've had spiritual experiences, which I'm sure, and one time I read about Sonny Rollins having this, and I see him every once in a while, well I used to see him more because when I take the train from Hudson back to New York City, when I have to go back to Manhattan because I still maintain an Mm -hmm. apartment there. I used to see he, uh, uh, Sonny and his wife, you know, and he would like buy me breakfast on the train, you know, and we'd talk about it. And I said, You know, man, I got to tell you something. I read something that you said one time and, in an interview, and I said, And, and I've had the, and I've written about this too. And it's the feeling of that spiritual experience where it's not you doing it. <laughs> like you leave your body kind yeah. of thing and you're floating over I know this sounds totally no, out but maybe right. you've experienced it but you don't, do, you don't get it that often I think I can count on one hand and leave a few f- fingers free the times I've felt it yeah. but when it hits oh my god it's unbelievable the feeling is so overwhelming that you're just floating and uh, you're watching yourself, almost. Oh. It's like this you leave, you leave your body and you're floating over this form, which is you. Like I'm, It's almost
0: like you look around and say,
1: "Whoa, who's <laughs> saying that?" <laughs> Did you ever have that happen?
0: I, I don't think I have.
1: Oh, well, Not you're like young that. yet. it'll happen. <laughs> Give yourself time.:
0: I'll make note that this was the last time anyone called me young." at 93. Miss Jordan is still lighting up audiences and expressing her appreciation in being part of the jazz canon. After our interview, I had the pleasure of accompanying her on a blues. Here's the tail end of that spontaneous jam.
1: I used to forge my mother's birth certificate, wore a hat with a veil, high-heeled shoes that were killing my feet, smoking my Lucky Strike cigarettes. I was going to get in the dark to hear the bird but the man said I think you better be home doing your homework. So we went round in the alley sitting on the garbage cans (laughs) me and Tommy Flanagan and Kenny Burrell and Barry Harris Bird knew we were there and he opened up the door and he played his heart out for us Oh What a treat, 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 what a treat treat. for a 15-year-old kid that loved jazz. Well, if it wasn't for jazz music, I wouldn't be alive today. If it wasn't for jazz, I wouldn't be alive today (laughs) Because back when I was just a skinny little kid by the nickname of Jeannie Dawson, running down on John R. in Detroit, Michigan, so I could buy all those 78 records to hear Bud Powell and Theolonious Monk and Miles Davis and Roy Haynes and Max Roach and Duke Ellington and Count Basie and Lester Young and Fats Navarro and Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan and Billie Holiday. And on and on and on and on, I wouldn't be up here in my house in Hunter's Land, New York, with Monk Rose singing for you today. Today, oh no, no, no.
0: <laughs> so At the time, I didn't have a definition for my feelings during that duet. But Hale Galper's statement applies. My neurological neurons were highly stimulated. Let's turn to another vocalist, Diane Reeves, who, like Sheila Jordan, feels deeply about the importance of jazz in her life. This from our 2001 interview conducted before she took the stage at Hamilton College.
2: Music saved my life. And, um, I know growing up, the music that that I would listen to was really a backdrop for the civil rights movement, for the Vietnam War. The music was full of hope and brotherhood and um, positivity, and on all levels, not just songs that talked had you know political or social uh, meanings, but also about how men felt about women, vice versa, all of it was very, very beautiful. And I needed to hear all of those things. Um, for me, I think performance is more like meditation than it is um, given a performance. It's a spiritual place for me. So, I just want to make sure a lot of times that the words that I um, sing about or the things that I sing about are things that I really, really believe in my soul, that are really, really a a part of who I am. I feel that I come from a place, a foundation, that allows for um, the celebration of uniqueness. That's what, how I view jazz music. And through that, I'm able to take the kinds of, I don't know, songs, lyrics, or ideas, and give them that kind of freedom, free sensibility, free uh, the ability to change from night to night. And that's what I love, because to me that's what life is. And I think jazz is life. I equate jazz with life and life experience i need to be able to take the music and give it breathe life in it just like i learned just what i listen to anytime i put on a, a great jazz musician or a great jazz vocalist that there's life in the music how do you make that how do you how do you draw a picture and make it have dimension and i believe that there's power in words and so that's why i select them to sing because i'm trying to get to that place
0: in Season 1, we called on band leader and composer Maria Schneider to share a childhood music memory. She continues her story here, especially noteworthy now, considering her phenomenal success in the jazz world.
3: As far as jazz composition goes, when, when I did my undergrad from at the University of Minnesota, there was no jazz program at that school. I also oh. didn't have a jazz high school band or anything like that. I grew up, play, um, a matter of fact, I'm, you know, I'm from Minnesota, a very mm-hmm. small town, and there was only one person in Wyndham that really knew anything about jazz, but she was an extraordinary stride player. This is kind of going off the <laughs> your question, but it kind of leads up, because mm-hmm. my education really started with her, and as I was learning classical pieces, she taught me how to play in this old stride style, so we were learning standards, and... I would come up with my own piano arrangements of them, basically, Mm. with a little bit of improvisation. And I learned to play out of a fake book. Um, The thing is, she didn't tell me anything about the development of jazz. But I I, I thought that jazz had died, and I felt really sad that I grew up in the wrong era, because I wanted to be part of that. Mm -hmm. So by the time I went to college for music, I thought, well, maybe I'll study composition. But I felt weird in the classical world, because the classical world in the universities, especially, even more so at that time, tonality was something that, you know, if you wrote something that was tonal, you were just shunned. And I remember I wrote a piece um, for two pianos that was on a sort of composer forum concert at Mm -hmm. the school or whatever. And I remember people looking at each other because everybody was writing sort of atonal music and this thing was very tonal and romantic. And I remember seeing two older composers looking at each other and giggling. Hmm. And I remember feeling, I just don't have a place in this world, in this music. And then I went to... Two things happened at once. I went to a Bob Hope show, of all things, and they were backed up by a big band from the college. (laughs) This is right when I started school, Uh and I said, oh oh my God, there's a big band, and I saw this, this kid playing drums, and people improvising a little bit, and I was like, oh my God, this... I want I, I had no idea this sort of thing existed. And then this guy who lived in the dorm down the hall from me, he's, he heard me playing some old Ellington album, and he said, do you like jazz? And I said, yeah, you know what that is? <laughs> and he said, well, as it turned out, I didn't know what it was. He knew what it was. He brought me all these records. He brought me um, Herbie Hancock, Headhunters. He brought me Coltrane, McCoy Tyner. I'd never heard a piano player w- play without a root before. So suddenly I heard all this modern jazz, and... I tell you, I was like in tears because it was like, oh my God, the dream came true that this music had evolved and I could be part of it.
0: It seems clear that both Sheila, Diane, and Maria didn't just desire a life in jazz, but were actually compelled to pursue it. Reminiscent of Phil Wood's advice about pursuing jazz only if you have no other career choice. Another saxophonist, Billy Mitchell, concisely describes that concept.
4: That, that's it. You don't play music because you necessarily want to. You, or when I say play music, I mean you don't follow a musician's life and lifestyle unless you really have to, you really can't do anything else. Yeah. I, I'd it's, like to say it's a calling.
0: Time for our Jazz Vocabulary Word of the Week. If you listened to intently to Season 1, you'll recall our insider jazz terms. Here's an up-tempo review. Vocalise, lick, riff, tune, gig, oral, O-R-A-L, and oral, A-U-R-A-L, the blue notes, jam session, cutting contest, improvisation, song form, chorus, chorus, club dates and casuals. If this makes you want to go back and check out Episodes 1 through 8 for the first time or for a second listening, I'm all for that. Our Episode 9 vocabulary word is STANDARDS, as in THE STANDARDS, the songs any self-respecting jazz player should know. Jazz musicians have always been creative, but also opportunistic composing their own jazz compositions while borrowing and adapting songs from Broadway musicals and popular tunes written predominantly in the 1930s and 40s. These sophisticated compositions make up the Great American Songbook, the G.A.S. Even today, a typical set by a jazz group will include offerings from both sources, tunes by Thelonious Monk, Herbie Hancock, Dave Brubeck, Mary Lou Williams, and many others, as well as the Great American Songbook entries from George Gershwin, Cole Porter, Rodgers and Hart, and Jerome Kern. The majority of these songs were written at the piano and include sophisticated chord progressions and song forms. As an aside, it's been my observation that guitar-based songs from the 1950s have been less likely to attract jazz interpretations. Jazz journalists regularly pose the question, where will the next standards come from? Well, as Fats Waller once said, one never knows, do one. Let's take a moment with some key phrases from our interviewees heard so far in this episode. Describing their devotion and commitment to jazz, we heard Sheila Jordan call it the most spiritual thing in the world. Diane Reeves stated that it saved her life. Maria Schneider shed tears when realizing she could be part of it. And Billy Mitchell stated that it was a calling. Pretty profound. The celebrated percussionist Don Elias had a less intense way of describing his ultimate career choice. What brought you to the kung drum? You know, I don't
4: know. Again, I never really thought about me being a professional musician. You know, I went to school to study medicine. You know, my mom wanted me to be a doctor. And I went to a certain point and got my degree in biochemistry but uh, I got bit. I got bit seriously. I, I really, literally how it happened is that uh, I had this wonderful job working in a, in a research laboratory in cancer up in Rhode Island. And hematology was a great laboratory, and I was also playing at night in Boston. Uh-huh. So this trip back and forth, Providence, you know, living in Providence, back to Boston, back and forth. And one day I walked into that laboratory, and I sat down. I was dead tired, dead tired, and I sat down and said, "What is the thing that makes you the happiest? Come on now, what is it that really makes you, you know, happy for for a length of time?" And I chose to play music, yeah. and the, the, how I got to it, the earliest I can remember was, was I had a, a, a little small drum, and I have no idea where I got it from. Can't remember with it with a Chinese design on it. So I used to call it a Chinese drum, Chinese design on it, and um, I used to start banging on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Was it your household musical at all? Yeah, matter of fact,
4: my uncle played. Organ and keyboard. He was a swinging organ player. He lived in Washington and he used to play some some jobs over there. My mom played a little piano. My grandmother played a little violin. Nothing serious, you know, nothing serious. And they actually did make an attempt to send me and my brother (laughs) to music lessons, Mm -hmm. piano, you know. But at that period of time, I wanted to be out playing basketball and stuff. I didn't want to, you know, be associated with me. I don't know. But every once in a while, I would. you know, sneak in there because we didn't have a piano and sneak in there and play some stuff and stuff. And that.
0: Well, I'm wondering what the phone call to your mother was like when you decided uh, to uh, switch careers. Uh,
4: hell. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing, that, for want of a better word, thinking of a better word. Look, take taking consideration of time, you know, it was in the 60s, you know, in the 50s and the 60s. Um, um, I'm a black American growing up in a certain kind of environment mm-hmm. and the, the the revolution wasn't you know really going on when I was going to school, I'm talking about 58, 59, it wasn't really prevalent there. There were no you know uh, revolutionary activities around that time. Mm-hmm. Parents wanted their kids, I'm, I'm talking about Afro-American parents, wanted their kids to be doctors, lawyers, mm-hmm. something with some kind of. Uh, uh, uh cl- clout to it, you know intellectually you know clout to it, stuff like that and uh, needless to say <laughs> uh, when I told her that uh, I had quit my laboratory job and you know she didn't like that matter of fact it was only recently when I say recently I'm talking about maybe seven years maybe that uh, she uh I think she liked more the people I was playing with <laughs> than than the playing. I said, "Mom, I'm playing with Miles Davis. Oh, Miles Davis! Yeah. Lou Rawls. Oh,
0: Lou Rawls!" Oh. Yeah,
4: she would love all of that, you know. But yeah. uh, me being a musician, no, she didn't want that. Yeah, she was really upset about that.
0: Gosh. Yeah. Well, she could at least brag to her neighbors, perhaps. Who the, she who did the, that.
4: You know. <laughs> she did do that because I, you know, I'd be there on a number of occasions where she turned around. Oh. He, he played with me and some oh, uh, you know mom's you know
0: yeah. what is the thing that makes you the happiest in a perfect world career counselors would frame that don elias quote and hang it strategically on their office wall my high school guidance counselor recognized my music passion but encouraged i pursue the music education path as opposed to concentrating solely on being a professional working musician. This was common practice at the time and jazz players of a certain era call it the old fall back on. If the gigs aren't forthcoming you'll have something to fall back on. Our next episode will include interviewees addressing that annoying reality of making a living. During our interview project I learned of another reason that aspiring musicians chose the jazz path one that surprised me, but in retrospect, should not have. Almost without exception, young instrumentalists learn to play in a traditional setting, learning to read music, play scales, etudes, and the standard repertoire for their particular instrument. This process takes place in a classical music environment and predictably can lead the more gifted players into that field. It may come as a surprise to us that throughout the 20th century, a significant number of young African Americans have aspired to a career in the classical world, envisioning a life as a member of an established symphony orchestra. In the late 1930s, trumpeter Joe Wilder attended the respected Massbaum School of Music in Philadelphia and excelled as a classical trumpet soloist. Here's an excerpt from Edward Berger's biography of Joe Wilder. Despite his continued commitment to classical music, at some point during his tenure at Massbaum, Wilder's goals began to shift as it began to dawn on him that a career with a major symphony orchestra was not realistic for an African-American musician coming of age in the late 1930s and early 1940s. Joe said, I still hope to join a symphony orchestra, but perhaps on a lower level. So while continuing his classical studies at Massbaum, the trumpeter began to work in some of the many local Philadelphia jazz groups. End of quote. Twenty years later, bassist Ron Carter was simultaneously playing gigs and completing his bachelor's degree in music at the prestigious Eastman School of Music. He recognized that the symphonic life offered a more dependable income, but heard straight from the top that it was not an option for him. Let's listen to Joe Wilder and Ron Carter Speak to this topic. Were you classically trained as a musician?
5: Me? Yeah. Oh yeah, I yeah. had a lot of classical training. Right. I went to the the Mass Bomb School in Philadelphia with Buddy Defranco and mm-hmm. uh, Red Rodney, and um, a bunch of guys like and and um, oh John 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 uh, Laporte oh, John Yeah. Laporte too. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: What were the opportunities like back at that time? For a musician well as yourself the
5: opportunities for for black musicians in the concert field were nil I mean they just they just weren't there and uh, you sort of I was still interested in classical music and because of that I guess I, I studied pretty hard at what I was at what I was doing at the time and I guess it gave me a little more momentum when I became a, a commercial player mm-hmm. it, it was a big help to me yeah uh, discipline wise and things like that but I I, I must say, because of, of having more interest at that point in classical music when I was younger, uh, it inhibited my jazz playing a great deal. Like I just didn't feel comfortable and I didn't play very well actually, mm-hmm. very stiff. Now in, in later years of course I've been you know, doing more of that and I right. feel more relaxed with it and, and, and probably play a little better at it.
0: Right at that time when you were about to graduate from Eastman, what, what were your career aspirations? at of- that
6: well, I thought that, you know, making gigs is one thing, you know, 20 bucks a night, and you play your brains so out and have a great time, but I, I wasn't sure that, that that's what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. you know, and, and seeing what appeared to be a, a relatively stable financial environment as a classical orchestral player, I said, well, I'm spending four years here, and this is my last two weeks at school, because I found out what the deal is, and I Bill who was one of the guest conductors of the Philharmonic when I was there, uh, took me to that when he was there for the one week and the last day, it was like a four-week, four-day week, he'd conduct four days and play the concert that mm-hmm. night. And that changed to plan to some great conductors with this Eastern Philharmonic yeah. Eastern uh, orchestra. He told me he'd like to have him in his orchestra down in Houston, but that he thought that the board of directors weren't ready to have a black person in the mm-hmm. orchestra. I say, well, if this is what they're telling him, wow. Uh, he's a major conductor, and they're one of the major orchestras. I mean, uh, really. Yeah, you know? and that was. He was blunt. He, was, he's, yeah. he laid it right out, you know?
0: Joe Wilder became an in demand trumpet player and enjoyed an active and diverse career in the commercial music field as well as in jazz. Ron Carter is now the most recorded bassist in jazz history. Playing an important role in a number of iconic jazz groups. They both were honored with a National Endowment of the Arts Jazz Master Award. We might conclude that even though their preferred career path was denied, it all worked out for the best, for them and us, as we benefited from their contribution to jazz. This would only provide a convenient rationalization of a segregated practice in the arts that is still with us. Let's wrap up with an excerpt from our 1996 interview with saxophonist Flip Phillips that just may offer the ultimate reason and motivation for living the jazz life.
6: My final saying like is, I played with the greatest musicians in the world, I think. The greatest. All the best. And I did come up in the greatest era of music the United States ever had. And I'm glad I was part of it, um, the music it was the greatest era I think, if you remember that era.
0: It's quite a gift to the, to the whole world. That's right. Yeah. I'm glad I was part of it. Yeah.
6: I'll drink to that. I'll
0: drink to that. <laughs> Double. The greatest era of music the United States ever had. That pretty much says it all. Until the next episode, when another group of jazz cats have more to say, we'll hear from such notables as Norman Simmons, Ron Carter, and Ellis Marsalis. You can find Jazz Backstory at hamilton.edu or on your favorite podcast platform. See you on the flip side.